Let's be honest. Talking about our faith, it can get hard sometimes. Sometimes we get caught up in the world. But now, the world will have to get caught up in us. We're here to talk about it. We're here to talk about our real faith. We're here to talk about the real God. For unapologetic apologetics everywhere, welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. Welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. It's Matt Burford. I'm always interested in story, and I'm always interested in, you know, as a parent, how in the world can I promote uh, the Christian faith in my children and make them under- not only just understand it, but be in awe of it? And Christmas is a good time to kind of foster that awe because there's a lot of things going on now. M- me and my family, we don't use Santa. I mean, that's just something that we just decided a long time ago. And uh, we try to really emphasize the Christmas story. And one of those things that we do, of course, is we have icons and figures all around the house. And one of them, we have two or three manger scenes. And I'm bringing in a guy today to talk about that specific thing. And that guy is Doug Powell. And there's a very difficult thing for me to do, which is introing people that I know, have known for a long time. And and he's one of them because he has worn so many different hats. He's such a neat guy, a complicated guy in terms of his traits and his talents. Uh, he's a musician, a magician, an apologist, a philosopher, a husband, a father. I mean, what other things are you, Doug? Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm at a loss for words. How about that? <laughs> well, then I've done my job, right? Uh, you write <laughs> for Apologia at the moment. Uh, you were a, a musician for a while, and now you're in the area of theology and apologetics. And I got to spend some time with you in San Diego at the Evangelical Philosophical and Theological Society. And I found out that you there was also another group there that involves archaeology, and it was with that group that I realized you're kind of a you're kind of an archaeology nerd, aren't you? I'm a massive archaeology nerd, and although I'm not trained in archaeology, I just love learning about all the latest discoveries. Well, you know a lot more than me, and I've brought you on today to talk about the birth narrative and specifically the manger narrative. Uh, let's just, you know, we can look at Luke and we can look at others, but specifically, Doug, I want to talk about that manger scene that is on uh, most people's mantles or somewhere around the house, or people are going to go to live nativity scenes around their area and their community. How close is that scene that we see promoted in culture to actual what's going on in the text? (laughs) Uh, actually, almost none of it. In fact, it's kind of <laughs> like a movie. It's like a movie poster where you see the entire cast uh, on the movie poster set in like a collage of scenes. It's kind of like that. Uh, because, uh, it, but there's no scene in the movie where it's just that. You know, it's like this. Uh, in fact, there may be even pictures not even from the movie at all on that poster that just kind of helps set a scene and a tone. And that's kind of what the nativity sets that we have are like. Um, and uh, so much of the, uh, uh, the so many of the ways in which it's 
inaccurate to what it would have really looked like comes from a misunderstanding of the words that are in scripture and, and, and how we interpret them uh, and, and uh, understand them once they hit English. They don't really resemble what they were intended to say in Greek. And, uh, and so we end up with uh, this kind of strange thing that, uh, that nobody who was there at the original birth of Christ, the, the nativity, would, they wouldn't even recognize our nativity scene, probably. So let me, so I'm, I'm going to go point by point. I'm in Luke 2 now, the birth of Jesus, the, the typical chapter that most people read. We read this as a family growing up. Um, so I'm going to point out specific kind of big points in the birth narrative, and you tell me from somebody who is a working apologist, uh, you write theology, you've written in the, haven't you written in the, the apologetic Bible too? You, I mean, you, I mean, you're, yeah. I mean, I, I go get real great guys that are, that are, that are good in their field. So you say you have a, a small interest in, a, in archaeology for those who, who are listening to me, that that's a big deal coming from Doug. He spends a lot of time doing this. So, um, it says, in those days, a decree went out, and Caesar Augustus, full stop, What do we have any anything to point to Caesar Augustus being real, and not only being real, that he asked for the, for the entire empire to be registered? I know those are easy questions, but let's just start there. Uh, well, I don't think anybody questions the uh, existence of Augustus. Uh, there's just too much literary and archaeological evidence for that. Um, the census is a little bit of a debate. Um, there's one we know that goes out uh, a few years earlier than, than Jesus's birth. And so we, there are people who will say that it can't be the same one because it's, it's, you know, several years away. But you got to remember the Roman Empire at that time with the communication that they had, it was going to take a while for decrees to get passed down and then something like this to actually be carried out. So it would go from Rome to the uh, Syrian governor, who apparently served two terms uh, with a space in between them, a period of time in between them, which uh, his uh, more well-known reign is after Jesus's birth. And so people have pointed to that as indicated that the story, indicating the story couldn't be true, but apparently he served uh, a previous time as well. And uh, so, you know, it probably took a few years to filter down and actually carry out. Hmm. Okay. Well then apparently some census uh, covered the entire Palestine, the entire Judea and Israel area. Uh, And then Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem. Why did they go to Bethlehem? Well, you returned to your uh, ancestral home or where you're from. You, you went back to your hometown. So that's where uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph's family is from, and so that's where they went back. Okay, these are easy questions. I'm leading you, I know. Um, so they go back to their hometown. How long of a journey do you think that would have been, especially for somebody that was apparently pregnant? Um, well, it, it, as the bird flies, it's, uh, oh, I don't know, 60 or 70 miles, uh, but they wouldn't have gone, uh, in a direct route because Samaria was in between Galilee and Judea. And so up in, uh, Galilee where Nazareth 
<clears throat> excuse me, uh, is they would uh, they would go all the way around Samaria, uh, uh, across the Jordan, go south all the way to about Jericho, and then cross back over the Jordan and head into Judea that way. So they the Samaritans were so despised that was the typical route for people from Galilee. So it added a lot of uh, mileage and several days and. So if you uh, if you could get as many as 20 miles in while you traveled, then we're talking you know a, about a week to do it, um, depending of course on how pregnant Mary was, which is unknown. So we got to got to figure at the very minimum three months, okay. probably probably more than that. And now so. we get to verse. I believe it's verse six. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So let's dispel the rumor that they just got into town, you know, from a long travel, and now they're looking for an inn. I mean, do do we expect them to have checked into a hotel and couldn't find a hotel, and they were just panicking because she was about to give birth, and then they find a manger, right? But- <laughs> yeah, th- this is where the nativity scene uh, kind of go r- really off script here from from scripture. Um, so when they when there there's no indication that they arrive at night. In fact, travelers at that time wouldn't have arrived at night. It just wouldn't have been a smart thing to do. They they could they knew how far they needed to go in a day. They knew when they needed to stop and uh, and to make arrangements for staying somewhere. So uh, them rolling into town at night as uh, Mary goes into labor is something that uh, actually comes from a kind of a, a Christian novel uh, from uh, the early 200s um, called the Proto-Evangelion of James. Uh, so this is this is not a biblical idea. It comes much later from somebody who didn't understand the culture or the territory, the geography of, of Palestine, and, and added all these details, just kind of these fanciful details. Um, so Bethlehem is about five or six miles from, uh, the, from Jerusalem at that time. These days, they actually abut each other. Um, but at that time, you have about a five or six mile distance, so maybe half a day's walk. And uh, it was not on a major trade route, and it was very small. So um, the most likely, Jerusalem did not have a hotel. There was no paid lodging place. Again, not on a trade route, too close to Jerusalem, and too small to actually uh, have a, you know, a, a functioning business as a result of it. So uh, when Joseph and Mary get into town, uh, given that he has to go back to his ancestral home, where's the logical place you think he would go? It, it would be a family's house or a relative's house, right? So um, that's that's most likely what happened. And so that, that kind of brings up the question, of, well, what about the inn? I thought there was no room at the inn. And uh, the, the, this is where um, the translation into English creates these misconceptions of what it would look like. The Greek word that's used there that we, get, we translate as in, 
uh, doesn't mean a lodging place, uh, some place where you go hire a room for the night. Um, uh, rooms at that or houses at that time had three rooms basically. You had one room that was uh, where everybody ate and slept and cooked, and you had one room that was kept open all the time for guests. You didn't really use it for storage or a master bedroom or anything like that. It was always there for guests. And a lot of times it was on the roof. So uh, this Greek word, kataluma, means guest room. And, uh, and when, it's you, when Luke, you, Luke uses this word twice in his gospel, the second time he uses it is when he's talking about the Last Supper, which is held in a kataluma, which is a guest room uh, of a private home. The first time he uses it is when he says there's no room in the kataluma, and that gets translated as in for some reason, but it means guest room. So, uh, so if, if uh, Joseph goes back to Bethlehem to a relative's house, which is the, makes the most sense of, of, uh, of where he would go, then there is no room in the guest room, probably because there are other relatives also returning to the census. Okay? So uh, they stay in the only other place in the house that there would be, and that's the place for animals. And uh, so they have these, you know, they would take domestic, their domestic animals and put them in, uh, in the house at night, not only so they wouldn't be stolen, but also it adds warmth to the house. These houses, of course, didn't have any heating in them. And uh, a lot of times they would be kind of in this recessed part of the main room. Um, and, uh, and then uh, the, the manger itself, the feeding trough, is actually built into either the kind of the platform that's the main room of the house or the, the side wall of this manger area but, um, or, you know, the, the, where the animals are kept. Um, quite often at that time and all the way up until the mid-20th century, these uh, three-room, traditional three-room homes were built um, either in caves or incorporated caves. And so uh, that lower area with the animals could be uh, uh, where, uh, built on, where a cave was, and then that, the home was built on top of it. Totally changes how your nativity looks when you, when you kind of understand all those things. So do we have... Uh, an early Christian tradition of putting Jesus in a cave? That is the earliest Christian tradition coming from uh, the, about the, the mid second century. That's oh, the see. first sure. time we have any uh, uh, writings that say that Jesus was born in a cave. And then there are, uh, I believe that's just Justin Martyr. And then there are another er, uh, other early Christian writers who uh, say the same thing, um, and that is corroborated. That tradition is uh, corroborated by the fact that the Emperor Hadrian, in 135, when he destroys Jerusalem and kicks the Jews out of town, uh, and he kicked them all out of Bethlehem, he tried to destroy the sites that were sacred to 
the Jews. And at that time, the Christians were seen as kind of an offshoot to the Jews still. And, uh, and he destroyed the Christian sites as well, although he did not kick the Christians out of Jerusalem or, or Bethlehem. So in the case of uh, Jesus's birthplace, he knew that there was a specific cave that was remembered as the place where Jesus was birth, born, and he had a, a grove of trees planted on top of it. And, uh, and, and it was uh, uh, dedicated to Adonis. And so there was a, a worship of Adonis there for 200 years uh, until Constantine's mother, uh, the first Christian emperor's mother, came to the Holy Land on a tour of the, she wanted to see the places where Jesus had, had lived and was born and all these things had taken place. And she got there, she got to Bethlehem and was asking where Jesus was born. And the Christians remembered that uh, Hadrian had built this, uh, this temple to Adonis. Uh, this grove of trees uh, to Adonis r above the cave. And so uh, Constantine had the trees removed, and there was the cave, and he built a chapel on top of it. It still exists to this day, the site anyway, and some of the original Constantine building, Constantinian buildings still exist to this day. Um, it, uh, it's been destroyed and, and was rebuilt by Justinian in the 6th century, but that building rebuilt by Justinian and then added onto by the Crusaders is what is there to this day. And, um, uh, and so you, you, you can go see it. You can even see parts of the, the Constantinian building there. All right, so we're going to move now in this manger scene on top of my mantle uh, visually to the shepherds. Um, we usually see the animals there. Apparently that's justified. Uh, what about the shepherds? The shepherds uh, that we see in verse 8 who apparently have a vision. Well, not a vision. I mean, they see an angel. The angel says what it says, and then they go follow it to see the child. Um, now, I'm sure we don't have evidence of, of of the shepherds necessarily there other than what we have in the biblical text. But what about the area of Bethlehem? I mean, would there have been shepherds there? Do we know? And I mean, was it a, I'm, I'm assuming it's a, an agrarian society. So, I mean, that's pretty legit. Yeah, they still have uh, shepherds fields all around the, the city of Jerusalem or uh, Bethlehem. And uh, there is a traditional area marked out as the shepherd's fields where uh, the angel appeared to them. Now, I don't know, you know, how uh, that spot was chosen. I don't know the tradition behind it, but there, there is one there. And there are some first century uh, shepherd's folds still there. And uh, one of the most interesting things uh, about that is that there, it's full of caves where they would have uh, stayed and lived. And you, you can go explore the caves. And uh, actually, um, there is a Constantinian-era chapel uh, built near there as well in order to commemorate this. It's about a mile and a quarter from the cave where the Church of the Nativity is. Um, and uh, one of the things that is uh, commonly misrepresented in uh, nativity scenes is that Bethlehem is uh, a kind of a desert uh, terrain, and it's, it's not. It's incredibly hilly, 
And in fact, the uh, church in the nativity, that cave is on the, the ridge of a very steep hill, so steep that the, uh, um, the, the uh, gardens and uh, crops grown on that hill have to be terraced. And uh, so it, it's just a mile and a quarter away, but <clears throat> you've got to walk up a pretty steep hill uh, to get there. Wow, that's fascinating. Oh, well, uh, I I, I want to walk that area, and I definitely want to walk that area with somebody like you that can that can, you know, talk about it and describe it. Uh, we're gonna put something like that together. We we have to because, uh, and I will say this: of the people that I have that I've talked to who've gone over there, they come back. They have such an appreciation for these stories, and you can hear it uh, through your voice. I have people in my small group that talk that talk to us about their time there. I'm just just a It'd be so fascinating to go see in this stuff. Okay, um, shepherds, animals, caves. Uh, now we're in the Matthew. Uh, the three wise men. Real quick, uh, we have three wise men. All have gifts. Uh, we have one kneeling, two standing. Um, what's going on there? Uh, well, of course, that he was uh, Jesus. He was visited by the Magi. Um, in our nativity scenes, it's like they show up uh, not too long after the shepherds. But in Matthew, the word that is used there uh, for the age of Jesus is not the one that's used for infant. It's more like one for toddler. So uh, he's probably a little older. It's probably not even the same house. It may not even be the same house. Uh, they do show up to a house. So it's, uh, it's possible that Joseph and Mary have uh, decided to live there permanently, that he's moved back to his hometown. And uh, instead of uh, planning on raising uh, his family in Nazareth, and that's borne out by uh, the fact that when he has the, the you know, they, they uh, flee to Egypt uh, to escape Herod. And when Herod dies, Joseph has the, um, the vision from the angel that tells him to return, but don't go to Bethlehem. Well, if he was going to live in Nazareth, he wouldn't have to be told not to go back to Bethlehem. Uh, so uh, that indicates that was probably where he was going to go naturally. So uh, it, as far as the uh, Magi go, they are uh, 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 astrologers and uh, kind of the scientists of their day. Um, they're from the east, and all that means is somewhere east of the Jordan. We don't know how far east of the Jordan uh, because they're called Magi, uh, and that uh, that term is associated in particular with uh, um, like Zoroastrian uh, scientists, um, we think of them as being Persian. But uh, the fact that the, the early church fathers uh, said that they were from Arabia and that they brought frankincense and myrrh, which is created from trees only found in southern Arabia, um, they may have been from Jordan or somewhere in Saudi Arabia. We just don't know what the answer is. Um, and, uh, and, they pro and they wouldn't have shown up, you know, a little bit after the, the shepherds. Oh, okay. There's so much to go there, but I know we don't have, we don't have time. I, I have a question for you, though. So yes. as a Christian, is it proper to have this image of the typical image, and it's so funny, most probably won't remember this, but the minute I think of the three magi, I think of the claymation Christmas of the 1980s. Have you ever seen that? 
<laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> Do you remember the three camels that were singing in tune? Uh, vaguely. Oh, that's gonna have to be my bumper music for today. I, I love that. <laughs> so, but so, what do we do with this? I mean, as a Christian, and let's just say as parents, as trying to raise children in the Christian tradition, um, I, I don't want to go all iconoclast and destroy these things. Uh, I think there's mm-hmm. there's a place for these in their in their proper context. Are they just conversation starters? Uh, they're, uh, they're symbols of things that really happened that may not be accurate depictions of the things that they remind us of. Okay, it's kind of like when we, when we picture Jesus, Jesus usually looks a whole lot like us, um, when in reality he probably looked a little bit more like Osama bin Laden, you know, in reality. Same, same thing with uh, uh, Nicholas of Berry, who, who we think of as Santa Claus. Um, he, 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 you know, he, he wouldn't have looked like that. He would have looked more like Freddie Mercury or something. That's, a, you know, about, <laughs> I'm not so sure what to do with it, that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, he wouldn't have been dressed like a Harlequin, but, uh, sure. anyway, you're just saying he had big uh, teeth. Uh, that he, he was from, uh, you know, that, that, that area. Uh, yeah. That area. Yeah. So he could sing. Um, so. Had a great falsetto. We're not quite sure uh, what uh, Nicholas's voice. We knew he had a strong <laughs> right, right punch, right? right? Punch. That's that, right. Because he does knock somebody out at the Council of Nicaea for denying Christ's divinity. Well, you, you so just, how, you, how about that for Santa? You just took the Coca-Cola image and added a microphone for me. So uh, in my <laughs> head. So what are we to do with it? I mean, I mean, it's is it proper to have something that's not biblically? I mean, sound. Um, it, it just—it depends, you know. It, it, if what your intention is is to be reminded that this was a real historical event that took place, then it does that. If what you are trying to do is accurately depict uh, what it would have looked like, then it, it, it's not very helpful. Sure. Um, so, uh, but, you know, if you look at Renaissance paintings of biblical scenes, very often um, they are set in European settings. They're, they're biblical events set in European settings that don't resemble the Holy Land at all. And they would do that, these painters would do that in order to kind of apply, you know, that saying this is real history that has, is relevant for us today in our context. And so for us to understand the place where you keep animals as a stable, uh, a Western-style stable, um, it, that is just saying that we're applying that Christ is relevant to us today. If you understand it in that way, then it's totally fine. Sure. And as our friend Scott Smith says in Michigan, if we're going to be totally accurate, we have to put a dragon with, with seven heads around the manger from Revelations 12, which I think would be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's so funny to have to talk in terms like that as a westerner you know post in in you know the post-industrial period where we're looking for specifics it's good to have that but story is so much more than that right i, I don't mind it and right. I'm, I'm not arguing for that i just thought it'd be interesting to ask you that all right well thank you so much for coming on i i appreciate i appreciate your time uh, i would love to get you back to uh, alabama in fact you are um, by the time of this podcast is going to be out, you're going to be with us and doing some small group work for me at Hunter Street. 
and we look forward to uh, hearing from you again soon. Oh, I got I got two or three topics that I really like to cover next year. One being um, magic and how do we deal with that as a Christian from somebody that that tinkers in, in magic like you tinker in archaeology, right? <laughs> I'll uh, I'll come tinker with you. Yeah, I mean that's uh, I mean you're like in a guild, right? Uh, um, yes, I, I, I am. <laughs> Are we going to have to take that part out? So, <laughs> uh, no, no, uh, my wife already gives me a hard time about my little club. Hey, that listen, I'm in. man, I mean, my wife knows that I run a nerdy, you know, apologetic nonprofit. I mean, I mean, we're still geeking out about the Star Wars that's coming out in a couple of weeks. So we're nerds. I get it. So it's, it's the time of nerds. It's, it's the period to be a nerd. Um, I don't know if that's a nerd or a geek, though. My son will have to tell me the difference. All right. Well, I think the... I'm I, I'm both. I'm both, of course, because I, I never focus on one thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was a computer guy for a while, and now I'm an apologetic guy. I, I could be in both worlds. So uh, yeah. So we'll, we'll handle yeah. that. Well, thank you so much for coming on. For those who are listening, thanks for uh, listening to the Tactical Faith Podcast. You can find more of our podcast on our website, which is masterfully done by Shannon Poe our graphic artist uh, uh, and web developer. It's at www.tacticalfaith.com. He always tells me you don't have to do the W's, but I'm old, so I'm going to do them anyways. So you can see us there, or you can donate to us. That You can donate to us there, or you can email us. I like getting emails from folks. I'm starting to get a, a few here and there at matt at tacticalfaith.com um, or at info at tacticalfaith.com. All right, Doug, we'll see you soon. Thanks for having me. Still proceeding, guide us to that perfect light.